Let us feel the warmth of a new dawn. And above all, let us seize the promise of a brand new day. Merci, mes amis. Thank you, my friends. Merci tout le monde. So Canada has a new government. And it looks a lot like the old government that Canada had. It's a bit of a deja vu, right? Fatima Sayed is a Canadian reporter who hosts a political podcast called Backbench. We literally have not changed since 2019, despite having what was framed to us as a historic, consequential, momentous election. And it wasn't. A lot of Canadians are frustrated with how the country's election went this week. It is all over. None of the parties got what they wanted. And now Canadians are left wondering whether the federal election changes anything in the months ahead. The vote on Monday was a snap election, which means it didn't need to happen. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau chose to call it on August 15th. And the new parliament has pretty much the same breakdown of seats as the old one. The whole thing has a lot of people, like Fatima, wondering... Why did we just go through these last 36 days of our lives? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. And my friends, that's exactly what we are ready to do. That was Justin Trudeau on the night of his victory, if we can call it that. The Liberal Party, which he leads, won a minority government, which means more seats than any other party, but not enough to single-handedly pass new laws. I asked Fatima what she thought of Trudeau's speech. Does he have a clear mandate? So I was on radio for election night and I heard that speech and I heard that opening line and I looked over to my co-panelist and we both just made the biggest WTF faces <laughs> you can imagine because it's not a clear mandate. The onset of the election happened because Justin Trudeau looked at the political cards and saw that he could potentially get a majority government. And if he got a majority government, he could push a lot of the policies that he wanted to push, whether that was climate action, whether that was things pertaining to reconciliation or just pandemic recovery things like childcare and so forth. And then the election started and everything went wrong. Afghanistan happened. The Taliban took over and that became a major issue in Canada as the country failed to respond adequately. We had a lot of squabbling about things like abortion, about gun control, about childcare, about healthcare that wasn't really constructive and was a lot of like attacks between parties. Now, on the tail end of the 36 days, having addressed none of that, it was very strange, <laughs> to put it politely, to hear the prime minister of the country saying they have a clear mandate. Because they don't. And by addressed none of that, you mean none of that was really solved. There were no solutions put forward for any of the things you just listed. No, it was much of this election occurred in talking points and attacks on party platforms and party leadership. It wasn't constructive. 
Here's the main opposition leader, Aaron O'Toole, from the Conservative Party. Every Canadian has met a Justin Trudeau in their lives. Privileged, entitled, and always looking out for number one. He was looking out for number one when he called this expensive and unnecessary election in the middle of a pandemic. And here is Justin Trudeau. The problem with Mr. O'Toole and his principles is he says all the right-sounding things, and he's working on reassuring everyone that he's right there as a strong leader. But he can't convince his candidates to get vaccinated. And I know there's this big political theory that in an election you can't talk about issues. But when there are so many issues bubbling over, how do you not even talk about one of them constructively? And that's sort of the thought that I was struck with most heavily on election night when I heard him say the phrase clear mandate, because I don't know what he was interpreting. Justin Trudeau didn't win the popular vote. He lost some cabinet ministers. What is the clear mandate that he was seeing that the rest of the country didn't indicate at all when they went to the ballot box on Monday night? So we're going to dig a little deeper into some of the issues you raised. But first, just for our international audience, we should discuss why there was an election at all. (laughs) So this was a snap election. And for anyone not coming from a parliamentary system, what does that mean? The Canadian government has the prerogative to announce an election at any point between 18 months and four years. Justin Trudeau had that prerogative. He had a minority parliament, so that gave him more of an impetus to try and get a majority when he saw the winds changing direction. And that's what we just went through. He had a minority government. He wanted a majority. What would that have meant for Canada? This is a good question. Justin Trudeau's argument was that parliament was toxic, that he was struggling to get the policies he wanted to push through successfully implemented. That's not entirely true. The Liberal Party, led by Justin Trudeau, were getting a lot of backing from the New Democratic Party, which is your progressive left party in Canada. They were backing a lot of their childcare policies, a lot of the climate action, a lot of the pandemic recovery stuff that we saw in the last 18 months. Those two parties were sort of, you know, pushing them out together. He could have continued that, honestly, for the next four years. But I think... As is a case in politics, when you see a moment to grasp power, you go for it. And in this case, it backfired spectacularly. So what happens now? What will happen over the next few days and weeks? I wish I had a crystal ball to tell you, but here's my sense. As soon as we got the results, you get speeches, right? Election night is classic, wherever country you went. And the speeches were fascinating to me because Aaron O'Toole, the leader of Canada's Conservative Party, was saying that we succeeded, we broadened the Conservative base, and we're going to keep broadening the Conservative base. Canadian Conservative Party is open to anyone and every Canadian. Same thing for the leader of the Bloc Québécois Party. The Quebec-based Conservative Party, he was like, we were successful. We won Quebec. We're going to keep uh, our stronghold. We're going to keep going. And and then the leader of the People's Party of Canada, a fringe right-wing party, again, we're going to keep fighting. This isn't over. The purple wave is going to come. We're going to get seats in the next election. And all three of them seem to suggest that we will have another election in 18 months. Throughout our chat, 
Fatima stressed that a lot of the big issues got less attention than she thought they deserved. Climate change was one of them. A CBC poll says almost 20% of Canadians considered the environment their top election issue. I asked Fatima if that helped or hurt Trudeau in this election. It didn't either. And the reason is because he didn't take it seriously during the campaign. You know, Justin Trudeau had the hardest job in this election because he had to defend his track record and also prove that if reelected, he had more in the pipeline to deliver. Mm. And he couldn't do either. Every time he'd say, look, we put Canada on the map when it comes to climate action. We have higher targets now. We are working to increase the number of national parks. We are planting two billion trees. We are working on a just transition plan. Every time they would say something like that, they would be countered with, okay, but you bought pipelines. Mm. So what gives? Mm. And they couldn't defend that. You are a climate-focused journalist. What do climate activists wish they had seen or what do they want to see moving forward? I think we're at this point in time where everyone wants to see a holistic approach to climate action. You can't just deal with it in a sort of a laundry list of things to do. You have to incorporate climate into every single policy aspect. You know, Canada had the hottest summer in its history. Wildfires destroyed an entire village in British Columbia. Almost 600 people died because of the heat dome. The question now is, how do we prevent that from happening ever again? What kind of adaptation and mitigation policies can we put in place so that 600 people don't die next year? The leaders are not having those conversations. They're saying much of the same thing that they've always said. They're saying, we're going to meet our targets. We're going to remove subsidies from the fossil fuel industry. It's just, it's, it's much of the same. And I think that's concerning. Another issue. One of the biggest stories out of Canada this year was the discovery of unmarked graves containing the remains of hundreds of Indigenous children at former residential school sites. And that story put an international spotlight on Canada in a way that few stories really have Mm -hmm. this year. So how did the issue of Indigenous reconciliation factor into the campaigning over this past month? You know, there was this great moment in the English language debate, the only English language debate of the 36-day campaign, where an 18-year-old Indigenous young man asked the leaders this very poignant question. How can I trust and respect the federal government after 150-plus years of lies and abuse to my people? And as Prime Minister, what will you do to rebuild the trust between First Nations and the federal government? It was such a heavy and blunt question. And Malika, for the life of me, I don't understand why none of them on that stage could answer that. And you're absolutely right. Over the past Justin Trudeau years, started his remarks by reminding Canadians that he had ended boil water advisories in Indigenous communities. Working with, that is why over the past six years, we have stepped up on the path of reconciliation. We have ended uh, boil water advisories in 109 different communities. We have made sure- Indigenous issues do not start and end with clean drinking water. And I know I'm picking on Justin Trudeau uh, a lot, but it was the same for everyone. Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party, he focused on economic reconciliation. I want to build partnerships and have Indigenous- He talked about how he wants to include Indigenous people in the decisions about infrastructure. 
At the same time, his platform also includes a proposal to criminalize protests against infrastructure projects like pipelines, which we've seen Indigenous communities lead. And it goes so much more deeper than that. We have a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. They put out dozens of calls to action. The government is very behind on meeting those calls to action, which include everything from, yes, clean drinking water, but also missing and murdered Indigenous women and justice for them. It includes retribution for Indigenous children who were hurt through the welfare system. They include Indigenous education. They include recognizing Indigenous languages as official languages in this country. There is so much depth and nuance to what Indigenous communities need in Canada, and the leaders struggled to present sincerity or ambition or just genuine care when it comes to issues of reconciliation. Of course, the other big election issue was COVID. The prevailing opinion had been that Trudeau thought his Liberal Party would perform well because of how it had responded to the pandemic. I asked Fatima how Canada is handling COVID right now. Generally, we're on track, but we're not 100% safe yet. And you're seeing that manifest dangerously in various different provinces, most recently in Alberta, where a public health crisis has been declared yet again as the fourth wave is raging, uh, a storm in hospitals and ICUs. And the reason for that is because the provincial government there decided to open everything and have, quote, the best summer ever. If we just stick to our guns for a few more weeks, we'll head into what I truly believe will be the best summer in Alberta history. And unfortunately for my friends in Alberta, they are paying the price of that decision. So the election cycle this year was only five weeks long, which is the shortest possible in a Canadian election. And we've ended more or less where we started. As we've mentioned, we've talked about how the Conservative Party possibly has changed as a result, though. So have there been any other long-term impacts of this election season? So I'm personally worried about the state of the Green Party after this election. Their leader, Annamie Paul, the only woman running in the election campaign, the first Black and Jewish woman to ever run for federal leadership, she lost her seat on her third attempt to try and win a seat in the House of Commons. And not only did she lose the seat, but she only got 9% of the vote. It's a brutal defeat. So I am I'm worried about the state of the Green Party because in theory, they should be leading the conversation on climate change. But at this point in time, their party is, to put it colloquially, a bit of a dumpster fire situation that could really distract from the climate conversation that they have formerly led so formidably. So I'm worried about the Green Party, but I'm also worried about the new Democratic Party, who had an opportunity to really steal some progressive votes from the Liberals at this moment in time. And they didn't. Not a single one. Same number of seats. So I'm worried about why this country seems set in stone politically at this moment in time, and whether that's because of a crisis in leadership. Are these leaders just not inspiring enough? Are they not thinking innovatively enough? Or is it just voter apathy 
leaders need to be thinking about this as they move forward because political apathy is never a good thing, I, I think, for a democracy. Fatima says she's also worried about trends that are gaining momentum on the right end of the political spectrum. I think Canada needs to reckon with the People's Party. They're far right, they're fringe, and they're toxic. And this election, they won 5% of the vote share with more than 800,000 ballots. The PPC platform contains anti-Indigenous views, gripes about vaccinations, pro-gun attitudes. They want to lower the number of immigrants and stop the flow of refugees into the country. These are deeply embedded racist views against non-white communities in this country. And now they've got this organization, this home. Canada needs to have a serious conversation about them. So as a final thought here, some analysts have said that this election really showed the signs of growing polarization. This campaign has turned particularly ugly at times. Candidates of all stripes are facing verbal and even physical aggression. Canadian democracy has polarizing strains that cannot be overlooked. There are now concerns this election could bring about more polarization. Do you agree with that? And why do you think it is that we're seeing that now? I do think this election showed how deeply divided this country is. And I think the reasons are numerous. And they start with the fact that we don't necessarily connect between provinces or communities anymore because our experiences of the pandemic have also been vastly different. So it's a big challenge for elected officials moving forward. They promised us better. Building a better future. Make our lives better in the most ambitious way. Build a better future for all Canadians. That's the word that was constantly used during this election campaign. But they couldn't define better. And they couldn't assure us that better is around the corner with the next government. So every elected official right now has this opportunity to quickly and seriously tell us what better is and how they're going to deliver it. Otherwise, I worry that the factions of our society that are deeply frustrated will just intensify in those emotions. And I don't know what that means for the next election, which... God help me, might only be in 18 months. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Fatima, thank you so much for taking the time to walk me through this. And if Canada finds itself back in campaigning in 16 (laughs) months or so, uh, we would love to have you back on. I feel like that's a curse, just to say that out loud. <laughs> a little I feel bit like of I need threat, to go outside, right? turn around, and spit in various different directions. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Malika. It's been a pleasure. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey, with Ney Alvarez, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya El-Milek is the team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is the Take Story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>